Galnet News Digest Review of the Year 3306. We recall the news so you don't have to. Part 1. Galnet and the Fleet Carriers. At the end of 3305, no one would have believed the catastrophe that was about to befall the galaxy. Certainly, Brewer's range of squadron carriers, now renamed Fleet Carriers, had once again missed their release deadline, more than two years after they were announced. But other than that, things were looking good. Operation Ida was making progress repairing Thargoid-damaged stations, and for now, the Thargoid threat seemed to have retreated. Commanders had come together to save the inhabitants of the generation ship Golconda, who now live relatively happily in the Euponiclis system on a reservation constructed for them by the Federation. Before that, we had worked to avert an agricultural catastrophe, we had helped to set up a new mini-bubble in the Witchhead Nebula, and we'd established outposts to help us explore Guardian sites. We were on a roll! Nothing could stop us. The Death of Galnet And then... As 3305 turned into 3306, nothing did stop us. There were a couple of tersely written Galnet articles about the Witchhead Nebula, and then there was nothing. A complete news blackout imposed by the Pilots' Federation affecting Galnet's ability to publish, and an immediate and unexplained halt to all cooperative activity within the galaxy, with interstellar initiatives and community goals put on hold, leaving commanders lost and bewildered. It seemed like the Pilots' Federation was no longer working for its members, but against them. Stonewalling requests for information, it became clear that the so-called Community Liaison Team had stopped representing rank-and-file members of the Pilots' Federation and was in the pay of some shadowy third party wanting to disrupt the normal operation of the galaxy. The rumour began to circulate that the Pilots' Federation was trying to drive bored and desperate commanders to switch from their lives in the real galaxy to playing the forthcoming space combat and trading simulation Stellar Citizen which, as of the beginning of 3306, was in what was described as a playable alpha, as it had been for the last 1,300 years. The Pilots' Federation was being sabotaged from within. The galaxy felt deader than it had ever been. And Galnet remained dead, not even commenting on the eventual release of fleet carriers in June 3306. In February, commanders were briefly spurred into action by a cruel hoax perpetrated by the Pilots' Federation, hinting that something interesting might be happening in a different star system. But it turned out to be a poorly constructed pun about a picture of her peduncle life form. The words, no plans at this time, became synonymous with, we don't give a shit. A single sad article on the 9th of June, announcing the availability of Vitadine nanomeds 18 months after they'd been cleared for production by the Interstellar Health Organization in January 3305, only served to highlight that the galaxy was no longer alive. There had never been less reasons to fly as a commander in the Pilots' Federation. Many thousands of commanders hung up their flight suits forever and moved to new careers as pirates on sailing ships, or stealing cars and dealing in drugs and petty crime. It was the worst of times. It was the worst of times. And then, 
suddenly, after nine months of total neglect, the galaxy suddenly woke up again. Some attribute this to the influence of a bald bloke from Essex, with a history of hawking the Xbox flight control system, who'd recently joined the Pilots' Federation. Others felt that the very fact that he had been recruited meant that the forces of good, in the form of a shadowy figure called Lawrence Alden, were already beginning to fight back within the organisation. Galnet was once again permitted to publish the news, and this once again allowed commanders to take part in shaping the destiny of the galaxy. From the 10th of September through to the present, the quantity and quality of news coming from the official Galnet newsfeed has equalled, some would say surpassed, the golden days of 3301, the days of Emperor Hengist Duval's murder by a henchman working for Denton Petraeus, the days of the bombing of the Onionhead Fields, the battle for Lou, and the loss of Starship One with Federal President Jasmina Halsey, presumed dead. This new policy of openness couldn't have come at a more timely moment. Had Galnet not been permitted to publish, we might never have learned about the bombing of four starports at the very heart of the Empire, and events might have turned out very differently. Brewer releases the fleet carrier. But let's rewind the clock. During the Dark Ages, when Galnet was shut down, a few things did happen the most significant of which was the eventual coming of fleet carriers. After more than two years of waiting, commanders were finally able to take a fleet carrier for a test flight in the first half of 3306, costing 5 billion credits, and with a massive upkeep cost, these mobile starports required two hours for each jump. But what a jump! capable of travelling 500 light-years, far further than the most finely-tuned neutron-boosted papier-mâché explorer conda, fleet carriers opened up the distant corners of the galaxy, those truly distant stars that had been previously inaccessible. The famous Anaconda graveyard in HD 76133, destination of the one-way distant stars expedition of 3303, could now be an afternoon jaunt for interested tourists before they pop back to the bubble for their cream tea and cucumber sandwiches. Fleet carriers also boasted a commodities market where the owner could set the buying and selling prices, creating, for the first time, a way that commanders could trade with each other directly. However, the proposed upkeep costs, the long time required for jump spin-up and cool-down, the inefficiency of the jump drives, which use huge amounts of tritium, and the high cost and the difficulty of mining tritium was all seen as barriers to the widespread adoption of fleet carriers, with potential owners declaring that they couldn't possibly break even on their running costs. Equally importantly, some key facilities, including universal cartographics, would not be available on these new stations, limiting their value to explorers. These problems were gradually addressed, with running costs slashed and the time for each jump reduced from 120 minutes to just 20 minutes. Universal Cartographics agreed to make their terminals available, although the revenue share agreement meant that explorers would see smaller payouts for the discoveries. Tritium costs remained high, with dramatic differences in price between systems. Fleet carrier owners discovered they could make huge amounts of credits for very little efforts by buying tritium at relatively high price in systems where tritium was cheap and then selling it off at a relatively cheap price for that system, 
which could still be three or more times more than they paid for it. Commanders without a fleet carrier would do all the shuttling of goods from the starport to the fleet carrier and back again, and also make a massive profit margin when selling to the fleet carrier when selling back to the destination starport. These market disparities were eventually sorted out, but problems mining tritium, which became increasingly difficult to find, proved to be another pinch point for fleet carrier owners. Finally, another round of adjustments to the efficiency of fleet carrier drives ameliorated this problem. Now, a fleet carrier can buy all the tritium it needs in the bubble, or in Colonia, to travel to the most distant star in the galaxy and back again, without the need to refuel. The only remaining slight problem is that someone on board needs a ship with a cargo capacity because it has been impossible for Brewer to come up with a means of transferring tritium from the fleet carrier's hold to the tritium depot used by the engines without first loading it onto a dock ship and then unloading it again. It's all terribly quaint. The profound changes fleet carriers have made to the galaxy can be seen from the creation of the Deep Space Support Array. Fleet carriers stationed throughout the galaxy to provide docking, repair and maintenance for explorers and other travellers, and from the establishment of Rackham's Peak, a scientific and recreational facility in the HIT-58-832 system, a system a mere 5,000 light-years from Sol, but so high above the galactic plane that it was previously unreachable. It's now a stop on any discerning tourist itinerary. In the next episode we'll look at what happened to the Thargoids during 3306. From the Witch Head to the Call Sack. <laughs>